Well, good morning. It's uh, been a real privilege and a joy for me to be with you this weekend. I've come to know you as a church that loves your Lord, and because you love Him, you love His mission. And it's a privilege to preach about that, uh, that theme to you, because I know I don't have to convince you. I know you're already convinced, and that we're in this together. So people like Stu and Annie and myself, we're just grateful for your partnership, for your long-term partnership with us in taking the gospel to people and places where it has not been known before. Will you turn with me in your Bibles, or I think it will also be available on the screen to Acts 8. We're going to be thinking together about this passage, also about the passage from Isaiah 49 that Tim read to us earlier. But we'll begin with uh, verse 1 of chapter 8. We'll read the first eight verses and then skip down to verse 26. So this is the word of the Lord. I invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word, if you would. Acts 8, beginning at verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs he did, for unclean crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed." So there was much joy in that city. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was to the slaughter. And like a silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you? Does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he And as they were going up the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, 
Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. This is the word of the Lord. And Father, we pray that your spirit will attend here, that you will touch us, heart, soul, mind, and body with the truth of your word. Change us for your glory, we pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that passage we read in 40, Isaiah 49, 6, there is a conversation that's taking place there. It's a conversation between God, Yahweh, and the suffering servant, right? And we know from other places in Scripture that this suffering servant is our Lord Jesus. He was the one despised of the nations, the one abhorred by his own people. And so we can see this with our New Testament eyes. We can see this as a conversation between God the Father and his Son, Father to Son. And what does he say to his Son? He says, it is too light a thing. I, want, I just want that to sink in. He says to his son, it is too light a thing, too small, too insignificant. It's not enough. And now, what is it that's not enough? What is it that's too light a thing? Well, it's that burning question on the hearts and minds of all the Jews of Isaiah's day. When will you bring back the lost tribes of Israel, those exiled ones? Will you, when will you bring them back? When will you unite, you unite Judah and Israel together again as God's united people? When will we enjoy the temple worship again? When will we uh, be ruled by the law of God, the law of Moses again? That's the burning question on all of their hearts. And yet, God the Father answers that question by subverting it. Do you see that it was the burning question on the Israelites' heart, and yet for God, as He interacted with His Son, He said, no, that's too small. Your greatest expectations, your greatest hope, the burning questions on your heart are not enough. They're not enough. Now, what is enough? What is enough? What will satisfy the Father's passion for His Son? That's right there. He says, I will make you a light to the nations, that your salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. So, brothers and sisters, right here in this Isaiah passage, we have it, right? The heart of mission, the burning heart for mission. It's not uh, what might motivate me or what might motivate you to mission. It's not the the lostness of those people there, the ideologies that hold them captive. It's not the poverty. It's not the displacement. All of those things are important, and all of those things move us. But there's something before that. There's something that moved the Father, and it was His overflowing, 
other-preferring, self-giving, never-dying, passionate love for His Son. He determined out of His love for His Son that He would be worshipped and adored by every people, nation, tribe, and tongue in our world. And he's brought us, me and you, right into that love. He's brought us in as adopted children. We are the little brothers and sisters of Jesus. We are sons of the Father. So let me just give it to you in this phrase, maybe, that you can remember. Before God so loved the world that he gave his only son, he so loved the son that he gave him the world and all its nations and peoples. So brothers and sisters, when we get that motivation right, you see, it's, it's not a burden to go. We're brought into the family. We're part of the family business. We're carrying out the father's love and passion for his son. It's normal. It's natural. And this passion of the Father's love for the Son, it, it runs through the Scriptures like a stream and it grows into a mighty torrent. And what we read in Acts 8 is when this torrent of God's love for His Son begins to overflow its banks and it begins to overflow to the nations. So as we think about this Acts 8 passage now, shifting over to it, we're going to look at it under two headings. One is an outsider who's moving in, an outsider who's moving in. I'm sorry, let me, let me just reverse that. An insider who's moving out, that's Philip, right, who's moving out in mission. And then an outsider who's moving in, that's the Ethiopian eunuch. Now just briefly, let me summarize and refresh your memory. You will recall that the Jerusalem church was an amazing church. It was a wonderful church. They shared their food together. They broke bread. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. And nevertheless, there was a local church problem, right? Because they were more than one people group. They had the Hebraic or the Aramaic-speaking Jews, and they had the Greek-speaking Jews that were part of that Jerusalem church. All Jews, but sort of different culturally. And there was a group from the Greek-speaking Jews that were widows, and they began to complain, right? Because they said, we're being overlooked in the food distribution. And the apostles didn't think it was right for them to stop their ministry of the word and prayer and start taking care of tables. So they appointed seven men full of the Holy Spirit and of good repute. And it just so happens all of these seven are Greek speakers themselves. And they take care of this problem. And it's the unity of the church is restored by the appointing of the seven deacons. And right there in Acts 6, it says that the word of God increased greatly and the number of disciples multiplied and many priests in Jerusalem were believing. So there's not a pastor alive that's got an ounce of the Spirit of God in him that wouldn't want to be the pastor of that church. There's not a disciple alive that wouldn't want to be part of that church. It was a dynamic, growing church. So when I say the status quo there, I'm not talking about some sort of negative situation. It was a wonderful, amazing status quo at the church in Jerusalem that had been healed through the ministry of the deacons. And yet, there was trouble if it wasn't there. 
the status quo was about to be disrupted by one Saul of Tarsus. You know that story really well, right? Saul was leading the mob that stoned one of those deacons right outside the city gates of Jerusalem. And the scripture says that the believers were scattered. And as they went, they went proclaiming the word of God. Now, I think Luke Riley sort of makes that point. He says they were all scattered except the apostles. So the pastors were left in Jerusalem. But the scattered ones were you, right? It was the people of the church. But they went, having been well-discipled, well-taught, they went proclaiming the word. Now, this disruption of the status quo is not a chaotic thing. It's not unplanned. Jesus has a plan. He's already told the apostles, you will be my witnesses. You know this, right? In Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the plan. And Samaria is right there in the plan. A global expansion of the gospel news carried by the apostles. And if that weren't enough, Jesus had his own foray into Samaria, didn't he? You know, right, that the Samaritans were the most hated people group among the Jews. And yet Jesus said, John 4, he said, it's my delight, it's my food. It's what nurtures me, satisfies me to have a conversation with a Samaritan woman who's given up on the institution of marriage. He delighted in it. Isn't that, that's beautiful. It's that overflowing love of the Father flowing through Jesus. So the disruption of the status quo was not random. It was not chaotic, although it must have felt chaotic and awful if you had been in Jerusalem, right? But it was according to Jesus' plan. Because he had a plan that his gospel would go into Samaria. And so the person he sends, it's not the apostles, but it's actually a consecrated layperson. You hearing me? It's a consecrated layman named Philip. Now, let me just pause here for a second to say, is there a disruption in our status quo? And there may be in your personal lives, and you can consider that, but I want to suggest that Christianity in the United States is is having our status quo disrupted. There's a well-researched book that points out that in the past 25 years, more Americans have left the faith than those who came into the faith through the first Great Awakening, the second Great Awakening, and all of the Billy Graham crusades combined. You hear me? We're in a moment of decline of Christianity in our country. So our status quo is being interrupted. And I think maybe the Lord will say to us through this passage, well, what do you do? Bite your fingers? You know, mobilize a political campaign? When our status quo is disrupted, it brings us more into focus what we're called to do is to be proclaiming His gospel 
to the nations. So this first responder was Philip. He's the insider who's moving out, you know, no longer serving tables in Jerusalem, but now a sent one of the church taking the gospel. And this church moves from being a gathered group to being a going group, right? It moves from being a settled body to being a sent body. So that's the uh, insider who's moving out. Let's think now a moment about the outsider who's moving in. It's this eunuch, right? Beautiful story here. Uh, I wonder if any of you have interacted with eunuchs this week. There's no, you know, chapter, local chapter of the Society of Eunuchs in America here in Thomasville. You know, we have a lot of gender differences in our society. We're pretty familiar with that. But yet, we're not familiar with eunuchs. But the people of Jesus' day were. It comes up in Jesus' teaching. And they know some things about the eunuch that might pass us by. And one thing they know about the eunuchs is this, that a eunuch is a person whose gender has been canceled. It's a male person who cannot bear children because he's been emasculated. Furthermore, they know about this eunuch that he comes, he probably grew up in the slave classes of the ancient world. And it often happened that the slaveholder, as slaves grew up in their household, they noticed sort of a capacity or competence in some of their slaves' children. But in order to ensure that the family riches of the slave owner stayed within the family, uh, they would take this competent slave, young slave person and emasculate him so that he could never have children, so that none of the family riches or the family resources would be sort of inadvertently slipped out of the family's circle into another family circle. So it was a way of ensuring that this slave owner kept his goods and his riches. But as you can imagine, although we didn't use this kind of language in that day, it involved robbing a man of his dignity. It involved stripping him of his very identity and robbing him of his progeny, his ability to bear children. You see it? Now, think about with me just a bit about the passage that he's reading in Isaiah. We know this passage well, right? Isaiah 53, it's the greatest gospel tract in the Old Testament. It's that great in my place passage, right? When Isaiah says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment for our peace fell upon him and by his wounds we are healed, right? It's that great he died in my place gospel. Brothers and sisters, that's the gospel. It's beautiful. But it's not the part of Isaiah 53 that the eunuch was reading, It's not the part Luke records for us. Have you ever noticed that? The part he records says this. He was oppressed. Now think about this in light of the experience of the eunuch, right? He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Now, I want to suggest to you that the cutting metaphor is not accidental here. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He couldn't come to his own defense. You hear it? By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered, and his generation, read it as his children, his progeny, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. So this is not the in my place gospel. And there are not two gospels, there's only one. But this is the suffering with me as a voiceless victim gospel. And I'm suggesting to you that this eunuch, as he read that, he so identified with it that he was desperate to to understand it, to know who this was talking about. Is it the prophet or is he talking about someone else? And from that passage, Philip begins to expound to him a gospel of Jesus. And brothers and sisters, it's the sin of the world that Jesus carries. It's not just my sin. It's not just your personal sin. But a sin takes root in our hearts, right? Lust leads to sexual violence and rape, doesn't it? Covetousness and selfishness, it leads to thievery and embezzlement and unjust policies and social divisions among us and racism and all the evils that we see. So picture this sin rising in the world like a great tsunami. It's not only the sin that I do, but it's the sin done to me or done to us. And let's just be uh, frank and honest about it. Some of us have more sin done to us than others. And this eunuch was one of those who had had a lot of sin done to him. And he needed to know that Jesus, when he went to die for him on the cross, he drove that cross into that beach. And as that tsunami of sin was washing up onto the shore, he said, here, your proud waves will stop. I will take the sin of Mike, sure, but I will take the sin of this world, the society, and I will take it to the grave and rise victorious. And the victorious king was the voiceless victim. And I want to say to you that when the eunuch heard that, he said to him, hey, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now think about it. He had just gone to the temple in Jerusalem. But as a eunuch, he didn't have a right to pray with the Jewish people. He had a deformity in his body. You can read it in Deuteronomy 23. He was disqualified from praying with God's holy people. And now he's asking, can I be admitted? Can you let me into the family of God? And Philip, being a well-trained disciple, he didn't say, well, I have to send back to Jerusalem and get Peter. Right? He didn't say that. He said, sure, let's go into the water. And the eunuch becomes a child of God. Stunning good news. You belong. The gospel's beautiful. The gospel's beautiful. 
Let me just close by pointing out a few points about unreached people in our world today. The first thing I'd like to say, and it has to be said, is that the unreached, those who have never heard the gospel, are still a reality in our world. I could give lots of examples, but one place I was um, a few years ago that still remains sort of etched in my memory was Yemen. It's in the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula. I climbed into a taxi in Sana'a, the capital. It's where the Houthis are. You hear about the Houthis in the news, right? And uh, these old men, no women in the taxi, by the way, but these older men with their long beards and their robes and their turbans were sitting in the taxi like this and had daggers in their belt. And uh, pretty soon they figured out I spoke Arabic. And so they were chatting with me a little bit. And uh, the oldest guy in the taxi turns to me. I'm in the back. He's in the front. He says, al-Islam." He says, foreign, foreign man, oh, foreign man, I'm inviting you to the religion of Islam. Now, brothers and sisters, I was in a place in that moment where if I were not ready to share with them the gospel, those men in that taxi would probably never meet another Christian who spoke their language, who could communicate the gospel to them. So the unreached people are still a reality in our world. And number two, I want to say God is at work before we arrive. I'm not going to be one of those fretful preachers that tells you, hey, if you don't go, they're going to die, and you're not. God is all-powerful. He's at work. And we go to join him in his work. Again, just another scene from my past. I was in Lebanon, lived there for about seven years, and it was during the Syrian war. And Syrian Sunni Muslims are considered an unreached people, and they were flowing over the border of Lebanon. Would you believe that one out of every three persons in Beirut was a Syrian refugee? And, you know, we think we have an immigration problem in our country. One out of every three. And I knew, I knew Sunni Muslims. You know, I knew that if you offer them the Bible, often they won't touch it. And if you invite them into the church, they won't go because they think immoral things take place among these Christians. And yet those Sunni Muslims who had been beat up by the tsunami of sin, many of them who had seen their daughters exploited or their fathers lose their lives in that brutal war, that most brutal of Islamic regimes, ISIS, as they flowed into Lebanon, they also flowed into the Lebanese churches. And I was stunned. I was probably more surprised than anybody when I see these Muslims raising their hands as we sing worship to Jesus in Lebanon. So I want to say to you, God is at work in the world. Don't ever think he's not. And these, these situations that we see, whether it's boat people crossing across the uh, Mediterranean or it's a mass of immigrants that are on our southern border and they're not all from Mexico, you know, they're from Afghanistan and they're from China and they're from Myanmar. Don't think for a moment that God isn't at work. Remember that. God is at work among the unreached people of our world. The third point I'd like to share is that 
Sharing the gospel is always person to person. And everywhere I go, I, I, I run into people who think, oh, we've covered the world now. We've got the internet. We've got satellite. We've covered the world with the announcement of the gospel. But brothers and sisters, the gospel is person to person. Jesus became flesh and blood, didn't he? He came and he spoke our language and he ate our food and he walked our dirty streets. The gospel is always person to person. Think about the Ethiopian. Wasn't he reading the most powerful gospel tract available in his day? There it was, right in front of him. And the question of Philip was, how can, uh, uh, do you understand what you're reading? And what did the Ethiopian answer? How can I? Unless someone guide me. Now, I want to say to you, I want you to hear it, that you've been sitting in this church for these years. You know enough to lead this Ethiopian to Christ. You know enough to lead those Yemeni men to Christ. Don't ever think you're not qualified. Don't ever think you're not qualified. And the last point I'll bring up is that the unreached are often oppressed. Now, for those of us who've not been oppressed, we may find it hard to identify with, but these people are often displaced. They're often asylum seekers. They're often boat people, and their alienation is palpable. They're alienated from their homes, sometimes from their families, sometimes from their uh, nations. They're often stateless people. That's an experience you and I have never had, and yet for many of them, it's their daily experience, a person without a state. Now, I'll just close, leave you with this question. Really, my time is up. But I want to leave you with this question. Uh, how can I unless someone guides me? Brothers and sisters, we've been given the word of life, given the power to guide those in our world. Are we ready to do it? Again, I know I'm speaking to people of the same heart. I'm not preaching to you. I'm inviting you. We have this chance to change the world. Mission, I'm possible. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful to you for including us in this overflowing, superabounding love to your Son. Thank you for bringing us into the family. Thank you for giving us this uh, great privilege of sharing the gospel with your world. We love you, Father. We bless you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.